Welcome to Power Plays, a CoBank Knowledge Exchange podcast series, an audio program where we connect you with top energy and environmental innovators who share their insights, experience, and market observations. Welcome to today's program, The Next Big Thing, Grid Connected Batteries. I'm Terry Vishwanath, the economist covering power, energy, and water for CoBank, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tamara Reynolds, CoBank's Regional Vice President of Electric Distribution. Hey, Tamara. Hey, Terry. You know, I'm really excited to talk about batteries. From a financing perspective, we're seeing a ton of interest from our co-op customers in battery storage. And I don't think it stops there. I think it's really across the entire energy industry, uh, really taking a closer look at battery storage as a whole, whether they're monitoring the, the falling costs and technology changes, or whether they're looking at financing hurdles and revenue streams to make these projects work. Uh, I think there's all these uh, different factors on the table uh, when they start to evaluate what this looks like for them. You know, you're absolutely right. When we were brainstorming ideas on how to showcase our first podcast series on batteries, I know we wanted to first probe the potential revenue streams that made storage a smart investment for our rural cooperatives. Yeah, and for this program, you had a chance to catch up with Gary Doris, the CEO of Ascend Analytics. Dr. Doris is a well-known economist in the industry, as you know, and he and his team have extensive experience in evaluating U.S. storage projects. Ascend has developed uh, operating software used to optimize battery charge and discharge strategies. So we thought he'd be the right person to probe on this idea of value stacking. Absolutely. You know, I'm a big fan of Gary's, and in my interview with him, I asked him why the U.S energy market is suddenly booming. So this year, 2021 is going to be a record year for installations. And I specifically wanted to ask him to discuss those four critical factors, that is siting, sizing, stacking, and bid strategy. The Ascend team refers to this as the four S factors critical to battery profitability. Here's my conversation with Gary. I'll tell you, there are a confluence of factors that are leading towards storage development. Foremostly, I'd say renewable. Storage Unlike traditional, say, pumped hydro storage, battery storage in particular uh, is extremely flexible and can start up and shut down with no costs and do it instantaneously. You can't get a combustion turbine to do that. And that creates a unique physical dynamic for integrating renewable resources. I think we've seen storage initially take a role in serving ancillary services. They can provide ancillary services, uh, 10-minute spinning reserves, without doing anything uh, in terms of consuming no energy. In terms of regulation, they move extremely efficient compared to thermal plants and exactly hit the mark. As we move up to longer duration, we're finding storage, the next thing would be incremental energy, something probably five minutes in duration, whereas uh, regulation would be a signal that would be maybe a, a minute or two in a given direction, but balancing out to zero over the course of an hour uh, and typically moves not much longer than a couple minutes. Incremental energy would typically be five to 15, 20 minutes in any given direction to balance out the system. And that's needed to integrate renewables. Right now, storage is very economic in terms of integrating renewables uh, in the market price signals Many of the ISOs at the five-minute level are screaming storage makes sense. Certainly in the West, where we have high renewable penetration rates, in California, SPP, and ERCOT, we find the economics of storage are, are very sound. Uh, certainly in ERCOT and SPP, I'd say two-hour and less storage makes sense. 
in California, it's been four hour storage. I think at one point, weren't we thinking about, you know, when we thought about renewables, weren't we just thinking that a gas plant would suffice in terms of being the automatic backup to renewables? I, I think, you know, there's been kind of a shift in sentiment, hasn't there, in terms of battery storage? You know, at one point we thought that natural gas um, plants might be able to serve that, you know, that that bridge uh, necessary partner to renewables. And, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, it, it looks like there's maybe a better solution. Yes, I would agree that natural gas uh, was considered the transition fuel to renewables and the transition capacity, moreover. Now we're seeing the economics of storage uh, decline precipitously, 10 plus percent a year for five years in a row. Suddenly storage is economic and it's green. It's consistent with uh, where we're headed in terms of energy supply. And it's, I think, rightly perceived uh, to be an investment that's not likely to be a stranded investment, unlike investments in new natural gas, which I think the common sentiment is they would be likely stranded at a certain point as we have 100% renewables. How important do you think is FERC 841 in terms of, you know, your work as an economist being able to, you know, find value and, and make these projects pencil? Has that been really important also as part of the development? FERC 841 is instrumental for storage to play in a level playing field with uh, traditional thermal generation. Like any power supply system and the economic construct, uh, we have certain rules in place and an economic structure for the market to clear. And that framework was derived from thermal generation, where thermal plants were the marginal unit. Uh, Storage wasn't even considered at that time that markets were formed. Well, storage is here, uh, and it can play an important role. And 841 was established to level the playing field between all resources and gives storage an opportunity to compete economically. I think uh, the introduction of five-minute price signals, which is concurrent from high renewable penetration rates, has also uh, been a part of, of the predecessor to 841 but very beneficial for storage. Uh, as we proceed forward with 841, what we're gonna have is co-optimization between energy and ancillary at the five minute level. And that's where storage can really excel and provide real value and in integrating renewables and dealing with the inherent variability of the system, efficiently tackling those five minute price spikes, balancing out the system and serving ancillaries. If you had some general advice you would talk about with regard to our electric cooperatives who are exploring storage development, um, you know, what, what might that be? So to realize storage in an economic framework, not just to put it in because it's a, a nice clean resource, but to derive value for ratepayers, I think we, we need to look at this at the sub-hourly level. It's not a matter of uh, taking energy from the belly of the dock and putting it at the head of the duck. That's going to leave about 70% of the value of storage off the table. There's significant value of storage in the sub-hourly. For co-ops, many of them are in a somewhat unique position of also being charged a monthly demand fee. And if that's the case, there's also some peak shaving opportunities as well. But in order for storage to realize its full economic potential, definitely recommend understanding the sub-hourly market dynamics and how storage can serve as a physical hedge to insulate co-op members against those real-time price spikes. 
then effectively all load is served against. Can you explain when you think about use cases in this space, you know, what are the the major use cases? Is there a pecking order with regard to how we think about use cases and and whether uh, storage makes sense from, you know, from an economic and, and a technology standpoint? So the use case for storage to realize the most economic value does depend a little bit on where you are. And so each market kind of has its different needs and presumably those needs are reflected in the market prices and conditions. I think the maturity of a market with respect to renewable penetration rates uh, tends to reflect the the relative value of storage. I'd also say uh, there's value in storage for co-ops in a fairly unique dimension, even if there's very low renewable penetration rates in your market in uh, peak shaving just avoiding those demand charges. So those are two tau points that kind of come to mind, right? Which is which is renewable integration. If you're in a market that is flooded by renewables, that all of a sudden the economics kind of makes sense because this, you know, we we have the means to be able to take advantage of a market that is being saturated um, by renewables. And then this other form, which is peak shaving, that commonly comes up. You know, I think those are kind of commonly what we look at, peak shaving, trying to not pay the top dollar for the energy and be being able to sort of smooth um, you know, the the costs of your of your resource. At one point I remember we had this conversation that you had said, you know, if we take a look at the market, the the part of the market that you see the leanest or the thinnest happens to be this ancillary service area. Can you kind of expand on on that discussion that we had? Sure, Terry. If we look at ancillary service market, it is relatively thin. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at an- regulation, the most profitable area for battery storage to operate, it's 300 megawatts uh, in most ISOs. Uh, some are at 100, like New York and New England. So saturation of this market happens pretty quickly. And I'd say in most cases throughout the country, the battery storage has effectively saturated at least the regulation market. Uh, So that means the opportunity to earn large returns and compete with thermal uh, at their prices, that's been cannibalized by other storage assets. If not now, it will happen soon enough. But there's still some opportunity there. The newer frontiers for storage, recognizing its declining costs, is to compete on incremental energy. That's where that five-minute price signal is really important. If we look at renewable penetration rates in California or Texas, SPP, they've all roughly gone from five years ago at 10% to today a little over 22%. The variability in price has gone from roughly in the day-ahead market $10 a megawatt hour to about $40 a megawatt hour. ERCOT, of course, having more variability than that, maybe double that. Uh, the real-time market has gone from five years ago at maybe $20 a megawatt hour to something on the order of $60 or $70 a megawatt hour. And again, ERCOT being probably double that. So the increase in renewable penetration rates, when I look at all three of these ISOs, directly impacts the variability in price. And it's that price movement up and down in the real-time market, where storage is able to extract its value. Maybe related to this kind of expansive role that that battery storage could play, you know, I think it's now 
it, it might be that next big technology advancement for grid management. Yes, Terry, I think storage can play an important role in grid hardening and resiliency and avoided transmission costs. That is another economic avenue for storage. It's still in the nascent stages at this point. Uh, we've looked at uh, this economically on radial systems, which a lot of co-op members have, where there's long distributed lines, and storage can avoid some transmission upgrades necessary to keep voltage at sufficient levels. But its biggest value today, and, and I'd say in the next five years, is in serving the grid in key hotspot areas, and that will defer investment in transmission and act as a more resilient resource to keep uh, the system running, even under duress. There are economies of scale that are realized with storage are relatively small compared to thermal plants. So it's appropriate to have many you know, smaller plants distributed throughout, creating greater grid resiliency than to have large centralized stations that are inherently subject to a single contingency. Terry, Gary made a number of really important points in his discussion with you. The first one I'd point out is really the extreme flexibility that battery storage affords compared to other technology. It seems like just a few years ago that everyone was touting the flexibility of reciprocating engines like Wartzilla's, but even those take up to two minutes to reach full output. The other thing I think that he pointed out that really resonated well with me and what I think will resonate well with our customers is the opportunity for co-ops particularly to combine battery storage with renewable generation as a way to insulate members against price spikes and demand charges. You know, I agree. It's interesting to note that, you know, 90% of storage development is occurring in about nine states. So California is home to about a third of the capacity, but Texas is not far behind. An EIA report that was released last year tells us that the Lone Star State can boast of having the most co-located battery storage capacity. Well, Terry, as the saying goes, everything's bigger in Texas. My team and I have the opportunity to work with Perdinalis Electric Co-op, which is the country's largest electric distribution co-op located just outside Austin, Texas. I think that they're such an interesting co-op to study because they continue to grow at a steady pace each year, roughly 15,000 meters a year, which is the size of an average electric co-op. They serve two distinct membership footprints, one that's really rural and one that's suburban. And then lastly, they have a long-term contract with LCRA that has some unique flexibility built in for managing their own generation and storage assets. I reached out to Christian Powell, who's Director of Regulatory Affairs, to see if he'd be willing to talk a little bit about their recent battery project and to walk us through how his company got comfortable making that investment. Here's what Christian had to say. We ultimately settled on this battery project in Johnson City Uh, Johnson City, Texas is where PEC is headquartered. So that was kind of a no brainer for us. Um, We also have quite a few other um, unique situations in the Johnson City area in our system and that we have a cooperative solar farm or or array there um, in Johnson City as well. So, you know, also another renewable and intermittent source of energy supply that's there. so, but ultimately we ended on a battery that was roughly, you know, 2.25 megawatts. Um, it's a two hour battery. It uh, makes it a four and a half megawatt hour battery. So um, the, uh, the design that we ended up with 
includes three different containers. Um, they're basically co-located at our Johnson City substation, um, just on the adjacent property there. Uh, inside those three containers, we ended up with nine 250 kVA battery inverter combination trains split between those three containers. Uh, it includes 216 lithium battery modules. This battery installation actually has a hundred millisecond trip time from full discharge to full um, charge and, and vice versa, right? So coming and going, which is a big part of, of uh, the true benefit of this type of resource. So Christian, you talked a lot about um, the motivation behind looking at a battery storage project is really to drive down some of the costs that your members experience across the board. Are there any other motivating factors behind um, looking at deploying batteries and, and, and adopting those um, you know, that you guys had to consider when you were looking at moving forward with this type of a project? To kind of even just get to a decision that you really, you're gonna move forward with a project, one of those um, being the cost, right? The cost of the membership. The other being the system impacts that would um, result as, uh, or would come about as a result of installation of those. Um, the other thing is the payback periods on, on what those costs might be when you, when you move into a project. So, you know, all of those things, you know, kind of played into our uh, decision-making process early on we kind of got to a place where it seemed to really make sense for us to do this project because the opportunity was almost too good to pass up. Uh, with such an emerging technology as we've talked about and so much interest in it and so much gaining popularity there was in the, in the market here in Texas, uh, we really felt like we needed to start studying it either way because we, we do have a, a large system and we, we do have folks who are interested in, you know, whether it be uh, what we call merchant generation, where they would want to come and connect our system or our own members who might want to co-locate batteries for uh, any number of, of installation purposes, whether it's backup generation or another source of revenue for them. Um, you know, we really felt like there was a unique opportunity here for us to study and learn from our own installation early on. You know, that coupled with um, there was an opportunity for us to secure a grant from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, uh, which was basically an emissions reduction type of grant as a, as a battery, um, and particularly a battery, as I mentioned earlier, that was co-located in our system with a solar installation you know, there are some other unique opportunities there where we can, you know, essentially make that solar go farther. Um, you know, sun only shines certain times of the day. And even then, um, the saturation, you know, there's, there, are, there are issues with the production value of the solar. If it's cloudy, uh, sometimes it doesn't always match up with when you really need the power. As far as timing goes, sun starts to go down as people come home and turn all the light switches and, appliances on and whatnot. So, um, you know, this being co-located there was another sort of no brainer in the sense of applying for this grant from the, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. 
And that grant actually was going to pay for basically up to half of the project. One of the major concerns that we had was the, the warranty period. And as we were going through the, the review of proposals, we wanted to make sure that no matter what the, the, the revenue um, and or the operational plan that we had, that we could definitely have the battery pay for itself within the warranty period. With the TCQ grant, with the multiple revenue streams that are coming out in the ERCOT market for batteries, um, you know, we were able to significantly reduce the payback period. In terms of making this project pencil, let's impact the economics a little bit because I think that's really important. So you had mentioned a couple of, you know, key points. One is that it had to be, the payback had to make sense within the warranty period that had to occur. When you undertook the financial modeling for this, you know, it was also in a backdrop of ERCOT having these outrageous price spikes, um, which is certainly going to be a motivating, would seem to be a motivating feature. But when you're looking for the lion's share of the value to sort of say, how do we get to yes on this project from a financing perspective, where did you find the, the most value? One of the big parts of the decision and, and what really drives the revenue for the batteries is that they are so versatile. There are so many different revenue streams that can be had with the battery and so many different things that you can do with them. Um, so from the standpoint of how we would operate it, um, there are ancillary services in ERCOT, which are one of the true, what, or what I think what all the ERCOT market is learning are the some of the true fundamental values of batteries is we mentioned earlier, we talked about the instantaneous deployment of them. Um, when there are issues in the ERCOT grid, very few resources can respond the way a battery can. The other thing is, you know, with those price spikes, batteries are proving to be a, a big benefit in uh, what I would call the, the cost avoidance market. So when you see those price spikes, um, that's, that's usually what determines how much transmission costs you pay for the rest of the year or for the, for the coming year. Um, so being able to use batteries to reduce your, your load impacts in those peaks because you have that battery power there to, to help supply and therefore not have to take it from the rest of the grid also helps reduce that cost for the entire next uh, calendar year. Another emerging place that batteries are, are starting to, to um, get a lot of consideration is in the capital expenditure deferral. So, you know, first and foremost happens to be that ancillary market, right? That ancillary market is just a natural setup for battery technology. And then this peak shaving which seems to be, especially in the, you know, the area of the world you're in, um, peak shaving is really important. And especially because of that saturation of other renewable assets. And then I think maybe last, if I've heard you correctly, it could be looking at capital de deferral in terms of maybe, you know, generation, but also maybe trans transmission. Is that maybe part of it as well? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I, well, and, and I think um, for us, being a very large distribution system, um, I think more so importantly for us is understanding if we can defer distribution system costs. 
that's that's obviously a, a, a big part of our cost um, allocation and cost structure at PEC. And any time that we can reduce the cost of distribution, um, it, it directly, you know, helps our membership and, and helps keep our costs down. So if I can sum up Christian's comment on how his organization got comfortable with this investment, there were a few drivers that were really important to Pertinalis. For starters, keeping costs down by insulating their members from those ERCOT price spikes. But also the decision was about making the most of their existing solar generation investment and perhaps offsetting some of the upfront costs through market participation. Harry, I think that's true. But from speaking with Christian, PEC is really leveraging this investment as a low-cost way to better understand how this kind of technology can be deployed with a longer-term goal of managing their system costs. You know, it was interesting how both Gary and Christian stressed the inherent flexibility of battery storage that flexibility of being able to start up and shut down with no cost and to do this instantaneously. As Gary mentioned, you can't get a combustion turbine to do that. And that creates a unique physical dynamic for integrating renewable resources. That's true. I hope all of you have enjoyed our first, but certainly not last podcast on battery storage. Join us on PowerPlays next month, where we will further that discussion, exploring how developers are racing to build the biggest batteries in Texas. Thanks again for joining us. The information provided in this podcast is not intended to be investment, tax, or legal advice and should not be relied upon by listeners for such purposes. The information contained in this podcast has been compiled from what CoBank regards as reliable sources. However, CoBank does not make any representation or warranty regarding the content and disclaims any responsibility for the information materials, third-party opinions, and data included in this podcast. In no event will CoBank be liable for any decision made or actions taken by any person or persons relying on the information contained in this podcast.